Welcome to the Agnet Weekly Podcast. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Just in the last week, an important ruling on WOTUS, Waters of the U.S. We start out today on the phone with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association Chief Counsel, Mary Thomas Hart, who will go over the details with us about this ruling and talk about what's next. After that, we chat with Sigrid Johannes, who is the Director of Government Affairs for NCBA and the Public Lands Council, and we're talking about the new Black Vulture Relief Act. But let's start out talking about the big story of the week, which is the WOTUS rulings, and head over to the phone with Mary Thomas Hart. Okay, well, we are talking once again about WOTUS, and there was a big decision in Texas, and I wanted to start out by just having you explain a little bit what the two cases in Texas were and what the judge's decision means. I know that one of the cases was the state of Texas, later joined by Idaho, wanted the court to vacate the WOTUS rule, essentially saying that it was putting federal rules on waters that are state jurisdictions, from what I understand. Um, And then the second one was the NCBA lawsuit that would have um, expanded it for the entire nation instead of just the two states. Am I along the right lines? That that is correct. And and I think, you know, that's probably a really important place to start. Um, So when the Biden administration announced its final rule, the, the day that that rule was published in the Federal Register, NCBA and a group of other national trade associations filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration in the Southern District Court of Texas, and that's federal court. Um, and the states of Texas and Idaho join our litigation. Um, so we're all suing the Biden administration, um, trying to get this rule overturned. And the first step in that litigation for our coalition and the states of Texas and Idaho were to request a nationwide preliminary injunction. So essentially a preliminary injunction puts the rule on hold um, so that we can litigate the case through without it impacting landowners, right? So that was kind of just our first step in the litigation. And so our coalition asked for a nationwide injunction. The states of Texas and Idaho asked for injunctions in their respective states. Um, I think that the judge saw Um, certainly some issues with the Biden rule and and hinted at that in his opinion. Um, But I think, you know, it was an easier lift to just grant injunctions in Texas and Idaho instead of a sweeping nationwide injunction of the Biden rule. Now, there are a couple other cases around the country, notably in North Dakota and Kentucky, where there are other states involved. And so we could pick up some additional state-related state-specific preliminary injunctions in the coming days and weeks, but we'll certainly keep an eye on that, and I don't want to guarantee it. Not until a decision is made, right? Right. And speaking of waiting for decisions to be made, we also have the Sackett versus EPA case in front of the Supreme Court. That's expected later this summer. Do you think that these cases will have any influence on that case? Great question, and I think that it will absolutely have an impact on this current litigation um, that that we're involved in against the Biden rule Um, for one reason in particular. You know, I think that the federal government during oral arguments back in October um, really made a fatal error. Um, Their attorney was asked a question by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, and she she basically asked the, the Department of Justice if in order to, you know, fine for the government. In order for the government to win, did the Supreme Court have to agree with and kind of, uh, you know, affirm the precedent of the significant nexus test? And it would have been very easy for the DOJ attorney to say no, um, but the DOJ attorney said yes. 
And that means that this majority conservative bench um, would have to agree with the significant nexus test, which has proven to be quite difficult for both regulators and landowners, right? That's the reason why the Biden administration's rule is so complex and so difficult to navigate is because it's kind of, it's based on this incredibly complicated um, and and not clear, very unclear test for, for which features are subject to federal jurisdiction. That's why, you know, landowners can't reliably start new projects without getting technical assistance. It's why regulators have to go out and, and lay eyes on every individual feature before issuing permits. Um, and so I think there, there's been a, a web of issues to grow from the significant nexus test. And I think that, you know, it, there's a decent chance that the Sackett opinion could overturn or in some way pull back the significant nexus test. Because the Biden rule uh, is kind of rooted in that, that is certainly going to impact um, the viability of this rule long term. And there has been so much confusion among the people who this rule is going to affect the most. When I talk to farmers and ranchers, they say that um, they have a hard time even understanding what they are supposed to do and how they're even supposed to comply with this confusing rule. The rule has now gone into effect. What should farmers and ranchers out around the nation be doing or, or how should they, um, where can they turn to start understanding and making sure that they're following the rule that they currently need to follow until possibly things are overturned? So, as you said, for 48 states across the country, the rule that the new definition went into effect on Monday, March 20th, 2023. So it is currently the law of the land in most of the country. Um, And my word of advice, not formal legal advice, but um, my word of advice to to producers and, and all landowners across the country is if you have any upcoming projects that will involve the manipulation of some waterway or some water feature on your property, talk to someone first, get some technical assistance, even if it's just going to your, you know, local soil and water conservation office or your NRCS office, talk to someone um, that can lay eyes on it and, and kind of talk to you through the rule and, and discuss your options, discuss the, the potential for that feature to be jurisdictional. Um, I think that's the best thing producers can do. This is a, uh, an a constantly evolving situation. Um, I think, you know, at any point in time in the next two months, we could get a decision from the Supreme Court that impacts the Biden rule. But, you know, I think if you're starting a new project now, certainly be cautious. And so what would be next for the NCBA and your battle against the current WOTUS rule? Are there any further steps that NCBA can take? There are, yep. So, like I said, um, this was only the first step of our litigation, right? So, Judge Brown, in his opinion on the nationwide PI, I think provided some some helpful guidance uh, and talked about the things in the rule that he finds the most concerning. And I think that he's really excited to consider the merits of this rule. Um, So, we look forward to the opportunity to continue that process. But at the same time, I think, like I said, there's still a chance that the Supreme Court could issue an opinion that practically overturns this rule. So, you know, I think we're, we're waiting to hear from the Supreme Court. We are engaged in litigation, continue to be engaged in litigation. Um, but Congress is also acting. So Congress has the authority of the Congressional Review Act, which is a mechanism by which they can consider 
new regulations and pass a resolution of disapproval of those regulations. So a disapproval resolution uh, made it through the House of Representatives a couple weeks ago and is now set to get a vote on the Senate floor this week. Um, if it passes through the Senate, it will go to the president's desk to sign or veto, and we expect President Biden to veto that, but I still think that it sends a really important message from Congress, both to the White House and the Supreme Court, that Congress, the, the body that wrote the Clean Water Act, does not see this as the direction that EPA should take their federal jurisdiction. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be watching for that vote as it happens. It's such a complicated uh, subject. The WOTUS rule itself is just so complicated. And as I said before, it's also very confusing. So I'm going to put this on you. Are there any other questions that I should have asked you? And with me not being an attorney, I don't know that I should ask you. <laughs> yeah, just a couple other things. So, you know, I think in CBA, when we look at any WOTUS definition, we're really looking for three things. One, how are ephemeral features treated, those features that only carry water after a rain or snow event? Two, how are isolated features treated, features that really aren't contributing to downstream water quality? And third, are there robust agricultural exemptions? The Biden rule gave us one out of three. We got some helpful agricultural exemptions. We, we don't know how those are going to be implemented yet, but we did get some helpful exemptions. I think our biggest concern is, you know, the, the lack of certainty surrounding those ephemeral and isolated features. Um, the last thing that I'll highlight is that if your listeners or, or readers um, want to engage in the legislative process, want to reach out to their senators, they can do that by going to policy.ncba.org. Um, and we have a, a portal that you can use to send a letter to your senator um, voicing your concerns over the Biden WOTUS rule. All right. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank you for your time. I know that you are very busy, so I appreciate you taking a few minutes out for us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you again to Mary Thomas Hart, NCBA Chief Counsel. We head now to a phone call with Sigrid Johannes, who is the Director of Government Affairs for NCBA and the Public Lands Council. The Black Vulture Relief Act was just recently introduced. Tell me a little bit about what this act would do and what that means for cattle producers, please. So the Black Vulture Relief Act is a bill that was introduced here in Washington, and this is an effort to give uh, cattle producers and other ag producers, for that matter, this is also something that affects the sheep industry pretty heavily, but to give those livestock producers more flexibility on the measures that they can take sort of in the moment to protect uh, calves and cows from black vulture uh, attacks. Black vulture depredation has grown hugely over the past few years, particularly in the Midwest and the Southeast, uh, but there's still a pretty low and, and very strict cap on the number of vultures that you can take in any given year to protect your herd because this is a species that's listed under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, a, a piece of federal uh, legislation that is intended to protect some of these predatory and migratory bird species. So basically, let's say you're you know, in Georgia or Virginia or Illinois in a, in a place where you're experiencing a lot of calf loss, calf death injury uh, due to black vultures, you have to apply currently for a permit through your state, you know, fishing game or wildlife department, and they in turn are issuing a permit to you from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to take up to three black vultures in a year. Three is not that many, and it's really not enough to address the scale of the problem when you're seeing producers, you know, have you know, herds or, sorry, flocks rather, of, you know, 30 to 40 birds congregating sort of in their calving pasture uh, and taking 
pretty significant numbers of livestock. And again, this is a problem that, you know, 20, 30 years ago might not have been that widespread. But today you can see in some states like Florida, where this is particularly acute, you know, more than a third of all cattle producers are losing a calf or multiple calves uh, to black vultures every year. So it's become a widespread problem. And this bill would sort of remove the need to have that permit on the front end. So you would be able to take, you know, as many vultures as needed to protect your livestock. And then on the back end, each season, you would submit a simple report saying this is how many so that, you know, wildlife uh, officials are still able to keep track of that population and monitor its levels. And we've seen other bills like this for other animals as well, and some have worked, some haven't perhaps. Uh, And there are many other animals that are also a problem for livestock producers. Um, What has been, I want to say, the success rate of getting bills like this to pass to help livestock producers? Do you think that there's a good chance for this, or do you think it's going to get a lot of pushback? You know, that's a great question, Sabrina. I think the interest in sort of predator species management, whether that is sort of the larger, uh, you know, iconic carnivore species that you see in the West, like wolves and bears, or whether it's maybe a little bit lesser known predators like the black vulture uh, in, or, you know, cormorants is another bird species that we talk about a lot uh, in other parts of the country. I think there's a very high level of interest right now on Capitol Hill in how these these species are managed. And, you know, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is a really big piece of that, but the Endangered Species Act, too, is another big piece of that. And that bill, uh, that piece of of law, uh, turns 50 years old this year. And so I think, you know, while it is usually a pretty uphill battle, uh, certainly in Congress, but also in the regulatory space, to change the way that we manage these species, I'm pretty optimistic this year because we're seeing some interest from folks who honestly are not normally open to those conversations. And I think there's a pretty widespread recognition that after 50 years in place, you know, the ESA has become overgrown, it's become inefficient, and they hardly ever delist species, even when they hit their recovery goals. So I think there's a lot of uh, sort of practical recognition that this is not working very effectively and changes need to be made. It also brings to my, to my mind, and please tell me if I'm completely off base here, but uh, a certain level of almost public education on the subject as well. People, you know, the general public who has no information or doesn't understand livestock production. I mean, we already know a lot of the general public doesn't understand farming in general. And then, you know, you bring in some other groups and they don't understand livestock production. Um, you know, how, how can a bird possibly be attacking a cow? Um, is there, do you think that there's more public awareness now. People are starting to understand that, yes, there are predatory animals out there, even birds, that do affect our livestock production. Or do you think that the public needs more education on this topic as well? And it's, it, I know that that's a random question, but it just it comes to mind that there's so much misunderstanding between the public and agriculture in general. And this seems like one of those issues where that would be a problem as well. No, I think that's completely correct. I think, you know, you're sort of right on both fronts. There is a greater awareness today than there used to be, but there's still a really long way to go and still a lot of education that needs to be done. You know, and we're very grateful to to our producers and to, you know, NCBA members, cattle producers across the country who share those stories with us because it lets us amplify that 
for for the general public, but you know, most importantly in this context for those lawmakers on Capitol Hill and those staffers who are saying sort of the exact same thing that you're saying. You know, like how how big of a problem is this really? What does that really look like when you experience a black vulture attack? You know, and I think for this species in particular, and for many bird species, there's a lot of misconceptions about what that damage looks like. You know, without getting into too much of the sort of gory details, uh, you know, this is a very slow way to go. It's a very brutal way to go. Uh, black vultures tend to go after calves either mid-birth or shortly after birth. Um, they're attracted to that sort of, you know, very vulnerable and, and weak animal. Um, and also a lot of the, you know, sort of blood and, and other things that go along with that process. So this is a, an instance where it can be pretty gory. It can be pretty, you know, rough to, to come across that. It's especially rough if you're trying to protect your animals, your livestock, and you're realizing that your hands are kind of tied and you don't have as many options to sort of get out there and protect them as you would like. Um, but those sort of experiences are not just a financial loss for producers. They're, they're pretty emotional. They hit home, you know. And so conveying those experiences to folks who aren't familiar with agriculture, who have never been in that position um, firsthand, is certainly an important part of making our case around this bill. So, you know, as bills move, they tend to move pretty slowly in a lot of cases. Uh, in the meantime, while livestock producers around the nation are hoping to get a little relief from this, uh, what can they do in the meantime to help protect their cattle? Is, is there, um, or, or, you know, to, is, are there any workarounds, I think is the question I'm trying to get at. Are there any workarounds to that three-bird rule? Yeah, so we have seen some optimistic cases where the cap has been increased. For example, in Virginia last year at the state level, they opted to lift that from three to five maximum birds uh, in a year. But I, unfortunately, I think workaround is the right term there. It's not a permanent solution. It's not a comprehensive solution. So you're absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, bills take a long time to move. They take a long time between introduction and, and hopefully becoming law. But I think in the meantime, unfortunately, you know, this is one where we're really going to have to, to lean on states to sort of provide some of that added flexibility uh, in the meantime, because producers are still living under this cap. They're still living under this set of rules uh, about black vulture management. Um, and, you know, we would like states to sort of step up and do as much as they can. But ultimately, this is going to take a, a federal solution. So we're going to be focused on hopefully moving this bill uh, forward, moving it across the finish line. And, and we're going to rely on all of our partners at the state level to help us sort of carry that forward. We've already had, even just since the bill dropped last week, we've had a lot of state affiliates, a lot of individual cattle producers, ton of people sort of flooding, flooding my inbox here in D.C. with, you know, offers to share stories, to get in touch with their congresspeople, to sort of to move this thing forward. And that effort, that sort of investment from all of the folks on the ground who are the most important voices in this conversation, that's the, that's the work that ultimately, you know, pays off here in D.C. So we're going to just keep on staying the course. Thank you again to Sigurd Johannes, the Director of Government Affairs for NCBA and the Public Lands Council. That's this week's Agnet Weekly Podcast. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thanks for tuning in.